Warm greetings to everyone on this beautiful, cool October day in the midst of God's fall holy day season. Well, we know we're in Charlotte, North Carolina today, but where are we now in prophecy? Where do you think we are in prophecy? You think we're at the end of the age? What do you think? How can you know? How do you know that if you think so? Aren't you naming dates? Really? If you think that? Didn't Jesus say, but of that day and hour knows no man, no, not the angels in heaven, but my Father only? That's in Matthew twenty-four thirty-six. 36. Why do you think you know so much then? If Christ said that you can't know the time, why, if you watch uh, some of the Sunday programs tomorrow, why, they will tell you that Jesus may come tonight. You better give your heart to the Lord because Jesus may be coming tonight or he may be coming next month. He may come next year. He may come a thousand years from now. You can't know because nobody can know the time. Is that true? Is that true? Well, today I'd like to talk about two things. One is the 7,000-year doctrine. It comes from your Bible. It comes from your Bible. And that tells us a lot about where we are in prophecy. And also, I'd like to talk about the biblical subject of vigilance. Vigilance is something that we are told to have. The title of this sermon today is The 7,000-Year Book and Vigilance. Well, the first thing, let's start off with the 7,000-year doctrine. Where does that come from? Well, we know the seven-day weekly cycle began at the Restoration Week that is described in Genesis 1 and 2, and it ends in the seventh-day Sabbath, which is what we're doing today now. Even the Sabbath commandment itself tells us that the Eternal rested on that day and set it apart and made it holy. You remember the Sabbath commandment? I think that's a really good one to commit to memory. I've committed that to memory. I, I can say it here. It's remember the Sabbath to keep it convenient. Uh-oh, Mr. League shook his head. I, I got that wrong, I guess. Maybe, I'm, well, let's try again. Remember the Sabbath to keep it pleasurable. No, Mr. League, I get it wrong. Well, let's turn and look. Let's turn and look in your Bible to see what this says, because sometimes people actually forget what the Sabbath commandment says. It says, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, to keep it holy. That's the actual commandment. And the Sabbath commandment tells us four things. It's a comprehensive commandment. It tells us four things. It tells us what we are commanded to do, when we are commanded to do it, how we are commanded to do it, and why we are commanded to do it. It says, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. That's the commandment. Then it tells us, when six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. That's this day. Then it tells us how we are to do it. In it you shall do no work. You, your son, your daughter, your manservant, your maidservant, your cattle, or the stranger that is within your gates. And then it tells us why. For in six days the Lord made the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and on the seventh day he rested. Therefore he blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. 
It ends with he made it holy. It begins with telling us to keep it holy. Apparently, that's important to God. It's something that's very important. And we're going to see in just a moment why uh, this same last number four, the part of that, repeated in the New Testament. Because it's something that's um, very important to God. The Sabbath pictures the millennial rule of Christ, the holy mountain of God. The Sabbath is holy because the holy mountain of God is holy. God's kingdom, God's people, his family is holy. The Bible says that um, be ye holy because I am holy. God gave us that instruction. You're going to be in the family of God, and you can't be in it unless you are set apart and sanctified. If you're still in your sins and profaned by the guilt of your sins, you can't be resurrected into the family of God. You know, in this context, the scripture that says that sin, that um, that we are dead in our sins and that uh, we cannot live in our sins is literally true. It is literally true because we cannot be resurrected to immortality unless we have God's Spirit sanctifying and setting us apart. The wages of sin literally is death in that regard. So it's very important. The Sabbath is connected with the millennial rule of Christ and the ruling family of God. Turn, if you would, please, to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Hebrews chapter 4 and verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read here from the New American Standard. The reason why is the King James translators were a little bit embarrassed by what one of the words in here says. It uses the word rest in a number of places here. And most of them, it means rest. The word is kataposis, and it means rest in terms of repose, like you're lying back or you're resting. But one place, it has a different meaning at the end. Let's see what that is. Here Paul is explaining that the seventh-day Sabbath and the promised land are types of the millennial rest of the church, the Israel of God. The seventh day and the promised land picture the kingdom of God. And he's pointing out these pictures and these connections for us here. Verse 1, Therefore let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Okay, here's a stern warning about disobedience of God's commandments. Verse 2, For indeed we, meaning the church, have had good news preached to us, just as they, meaning Israel, also But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed entered that rest. Just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Only Joshua and Caleb of Israel entered the rest. The rest died. The rest of Israel died in the wilderness because of their disobedience to God. Continuing, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. That's an amazing statement. You know, when Israel sinned and couldn't enter the promised land for 40 years, God continued right on with his plan. And each of us doesn't want to be left out of that either. But that plan was finished and completed. It's not going to be interrupted by anything. It is certain that it will be completed. He knows the end from the beginning, our God does. Verse 4, 
For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Again in this passage, they shall not enter into my rest, speaking of the millennial rest pictured by the Sabbath, or the um, the, the rest of um, Israel into the promised land. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, Israel did not enter because of that. You know, Israel broke the commandments as soon as they received them at Mount Sinai. They worshipped an idol. They made a golden calf as soon as, as soon as they had received the, um, the, the commandments. But what's the first one they broke? They broke one earlier. Remember, they broke the Sabbath commandment first. God gave them, uh, reinstated and showed them the timing of the Sabbath by the manna. And the first thing they did was break the Sabbath commandment in Exodus 16. Verse 7, here again he fixes a certain day, to day saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Certainly not about the day that God fixed. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. Verse 9, here is that word. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Rather, it says, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Your King James translation just says rest. The word in Greek is sabbatismos, sabbatismos. It means a Sabbath rest and is translated that way in the Revised Standard Version, the New American Standard, the New International Version, the American Standard Version, and a whole bunch of other ones as well. Because that's what it means. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Verse 10, for the one who has entered into his, meaning God's rest, has himself also rested from his, meaning human works. As God did from his. Remember, that's why we do it. Reason part number four of the commandment. Because God rested on the seventh day, blessed it and made it holy. That's the day he rested on. So we rest from our works on the same day he did for the same reason. He commanded us to do it. And which day did God rest on? The seventh day, he sanctified it, set it apart, made it special, and made it holy. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through the following of the same example of disobedience to any of God's commandments. But here we're talking specifically about sabbatismos, the keeping of the Sabbath, the day that God fixed These verses directly connect the weekly Sabbath and the millennial Sabbath of God. It's 6,000 years or six millennial days of human misrule of this planet, of this world. But Christ is coming and there's going to be a great millennial rest, a great millennial Sabbath. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. 2 Peter chapter 3. And verse 8. Here's a biblical principle that we are told to remember. Second Peter 
Second Peter chapter three, beginning in verse eight. But beloved, do not forget this one thing. Okay, here's something we're to remember, something that's important. Here it is. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Not supposed to forget that. Well, what is he, what is he saying here? Um, is, this is, I guess, is figurative, of course, because God's perception of time is certainly different from ours, isn't it? It is. But is it, is a thousand years as a day? It's like a thousand years is really short, or does a day stretch out to be a thousand years for God? He says both. How can that be? And is it both, maybe one or another? One thousand years is one way, another day is another. How is this? Well, I do think it references um, a figurative um, reference about God's perception of time. But sometimes we need to take things in the Bible a little more literally than we do. If you notice verses 7, the verse right before this, and verses 9 and 10, the verses right after it, they talk about millennial events. We won't go over all of them, but they do. So let me ask, ask you, what day is like a thousand years? This day is like a thousand years. And which thousand years is like a day? The millennial rule of Christ is like this day. Literally, a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. I mentioned that the word is as here is the word hos in Greek. It means about, and is translated about in most other places. For instance, in Mark 5.13, it talks about Christ um, casting the, the demons into Swine, and it says about 2,000 swine. There wasn't exactly 2,000 swine. There might have been in 2004. There might have been on 1,962. I mean, but it was about 2,000. Well, it's the same thing here. It's not exactly 1,000 years so that nobody can look at their watch and say, five, four, three, two, one, the 1,000 years is up. You can't do that. You can't do that. God leaves some fuzz, some some uh, a little uh, extra here and there, so that you don't know exactly what that time is. And historically, both the Jews and the first century church believed there would be six thousand years of human history, mankind's misrule of this world, Satan's rule of this world, and make no mistake about it, we live in Satan's mountain here. You are set apart. God says, come out of her, my people. You are sanctified and set apart. You are in it, but not of it. And Christ is coming to establish his mountain, the mountain that is of the stone that is cut out without hands and grows into a mountain that fills the whole earth. And God talks about this mountain, the holy mountain to come. This is a reality, a spiritual reality. That will happen. And really, the Satan's mountain and the mountains of this world that we have now, the governments, that's a spiritual reality as well that God beholds all the time. 6,000 years of human misrule, after which there will be a thousand-year period that would be ruled by the Messiah, the Anointed One, 
The first century church believed that, of course. And some ancient historians that mention the doctrine are Irenaeus, Catina, Lactantius, Victorinus, Hippotilus, Justin, uh, Justin Martyr, and Methodius. The doctrine is also mentioned prominently in the writings of the Sanhedrin in Jesus' day. So it's not a great mystery then that the first century church would have known about this. Turn to Revelation 20, verses 11 through 13. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 13. God put this in the Bible. This is a doctrine that is in God's word, and one that's important to us in an increasing way these days. The first century church held this doctrine. We can read about it throughout the New Testament, and it's also in the Old Testament. Verse 4, and I... um, Let's see. I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness of Jesus, for the word of God, who had not worshipped the image of the beast or its image, and had had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned for a thousand years. Verse 5, we're beginning in verse 4 and 5 there. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. For over such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. That's the millennial Sabbath. When Satan is put down, shut up, and taken away, we won't have him in the world in his slavery, the world held captive anymore. It will be the end of six millennial days of man's misrule, followed by the millennial Sabbath of a thousand years. If you'd like a little more information on this, you can go to uh, the November-December issue of Tomorrow's World of last year, and there's an article on this under question and answers on page 9. You can read it a little more detail about it if you'd like to follow up on that. Okay, point number two. I said that this is the 7,000-year book. It's an odd idea about the Bible, but the Bible has an overall chronology to it. It has a chronology. It's maintained by writer after writer, century after century. That's because the Bible is written from the point of view of a deity, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, if you go to the public library, every single book you will find there is written from a human point of view, from all the literature, all the science, all of the the histories, everything is from a man's point of view, mankind's point of view. The Bible, to me, is absolutely unique in that it is written from the point of view of a God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But all these different writers, Nehemiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, all of them, different writers living in different centuries, different languages sometimes, writing from the same point of view. They have the same great themes, But the same chronologies, the same chronology is there as well. It begins in Genesis at the beginning of a 7,000-year period, and it ends in Revelation at the end of it. There's not a whole lot before. There is some prehistory about before that time. That is in there. 
And there's not much after. There is some, though, very important things. There's a period of judgment, a new heaven and a new earth. But it, it doesn't really give us a great deal of information about the time after that period. And it all ends at the threshold of eternity. What a wonderful phrase that was used by Mr. John O'Gwen in, in something that he wrote. After all of this plan ends, we stand at the threshold of eternity. The end is the beginning, the great beginning. So it's possible to track the chronology of the Bible from Adam to the construction of the first temple by Solomon. You can read that in Bible study course lesson number two and part two. You can literally add the years up and you can get from the beginning of the, gen- the creation, restoration week, up to the first temple. But because of the vagaries of the ascension years and some of the vagaries of mankind's own um, timekeeping, we can't get an accurate fix on the biblical chronology since the first temple. We can get an idea of what it is, it's kind of within brackets, but we can't know exactly God has arranged it so that we can't know exactly where we are in the context of end-time events. We can only know the general time frame. We can know the general time frame. How much history has there been in the history of mankind? How many conversations do you think there have been? A trillion or two? I don't know. How many events have taken place? How many wars, how many people have lived and died? Well, huge numbers. But this book gives us the events, the wars, the histories, even the conversations, the conversations that took place that that are important to us in terms of understanding what God is doing, this overall chronology that he has. It also gives us instructions in God's way of life. It tells us his law. It tells us many other things, not just the chronology. But it contains the future history that we need to know to understand God's plan. You know, sometimes people, you ever heard the question, this is a trick question people will ask you. They say, well, you think the Bible's a book of science? You believe in Adam and Eve? You think the Bible is a book of science? It's the wrong question. How about this one? Is the Bible a book of history? Oh, yes. (laughs) You won't find too many equations and scientific formulas in here. That's a trick question. But the Bible is a book of history. Genesis is a book of history. It's being proven so more and more and more. Well, it contains the history of the world that is important to us, all the select events, even the conversations that are important to us for this plan. But it tells us the future history as well, the future history that we need to know to understand this plan of salvation for this entire 7,000-year period. And we can then look at the world in the context of a completed panorama of history. Here it is. No matter when you lived in this process, You can look at God's word and tell where you are and what will happen and be greatly assured as what your future will be and the completion of God's plan. 
What other book has such extraordinary content? A series of men um, living centuries apart, different places, different. They couldn't have made this up. That's in your Bible. To me, that's, you know, people give many proofs of the Bible. But that, how do you disprove that? They can't see it. You read this, though, you can see it. You see writer after writer, century after century, talking about the kingdom of God, picturing it, their lives picturing it, acting it out. God, and you read it from God's point of view. He's teaching us and telling us these things. Third point, I like to talk briefly about naming dates in the past. Naming dates in the past. Now, as a pastor... I've talked with many new contacts in the past, and they've heard criticisms of Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong uh, to the effect that he made prophecies that proved him to be a false prophet. And you can go on the Internet and see things like Armstrong's failed prophecies. They say, is this true? Is this this man, you you know, that told you all of these things, was he like a failed prophet? Is that what he was? Well, fortunately, it's not true, and that's very easily answered. Mr. Armstrong never claimed to be a prophet, unlike some of these characters running around today. And Mr. Armstrong said that he was not a prophet. And he knew of none in the church in these times. I'd like to mention now that if anyone here believes that you're a prophet, um, Mr. Bob League would like to see you briefly after services. So... If Mr. Armstrong didn't claim to be a prophet, how could he be a false prophet? He can't be. He never made a prophecy in his life. But he interpreted the prophecies of the Bible, never made any of his own, um, and he never claimed to speak for God. Mr. Armstrong admitted that some of his interpretations of biblical prophecies turned out to be incorrect, and an example was trying to fix a specific time frame in the 1970s. And I'll have to admit that some of the things that he said about the 19-year time cycles are really interesting and may still have some meaning for us today. But in 1956, Mr. Armstrong published a booklet called 1975 in Prophecy. He later retracted it. He concluded that setting dates is a mistake, and that's a policy that we continue today. So point number four, then. What can we know about the end of the age and what we should be doing. What can we know about the end of the age, and what should we be doing? Turn to Mark 13, 28 through 33. Mark chapter 13, verses 28 through 33. I'm going to read some from the great Olivet prophecy that Jesus gave. Verse 28, now learn this parable from the fig tree. When his branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know the summer is near. You know, behind the office, we have a fig tree. So it's pretty small right now. And uh, we can all watch it next spring when that happens. My father had a great big fig tree um, when I was growing up and um, in up into fairly recent times, I used to love to sit under that fig tree. You almost have to fight the birds for the right figs in the spring. But I really enjoyed that fig tree. But one thing about it, 
that when the spring is coming along, in the winter, of course, it's bare, drops everything. But when the spring comes along, the branches get kind of tender and young, and you start seeing those buds appear. Somehow, that fig tree knows when the spring is coming. So when you see um, the branch becoming tender, puts forth leaves, you know the summer is near. Verse 29, so you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So the things that he is describing here, he says, are going to happen and you could see some leaves popping out when these things begin to happen. Then he tells us three things to do. And this is important. This is all in the context of what we're talking about today. Verse 32. Look at this, please. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven or the Son, but only the Father. Okay, we can't know exactly. We read that before. But look at the next verse. Verse 33 tells us three things to do. Take heed. Watch. Pray. For you do not know when the time is. Take heed of what he has said. God's word, which gives us the picture, the things that will happen in those days. Watch for them. Watch for them. And pray. Pray always. to Stay close to God. For you don't know when these things are going to happen. Now, when these things, when it says here, watch, it doesn't mean in the sense of watch television like that. It means watch in the sense of wakeful vigilance, like a, a guard standing watch, wakefully vigilant, not dozing off and sleeping, but watching. Verses 34 through 37. Here's the reason why we are to watch. He tells us why. It is like a man going into a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for or because you do not know when the master of the house is coming. You don't know the exact time, so you've got to watch. You don't know when the master of the house is coming in the evening, at the midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning. Lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, to that group, I say to all, watch. All, that's us, all the churches down through the ages are told to watch. Even the churches who won't see the end time events, all are told to watch. If we knew when the time was, we wouldn't have to watch. That's why you don't know the time. So he keeps it that way so that you have to be vigilant and watch and wakeful. Just give you an example. For, for instance, if I know that my son David is coming home from college and will arrive, say, Tuesday at 7 o'clock p.m., you know, I won't spend the week wondering when he's going to arrive. And uh, Marsha will have his room prepared for his arrival and his, uh, have the refrigerators and the pantry both stocked. They will need to be when he shows up. But if we don't know when he's coming, 
Well, what day or what hour he's coming, we, we'll have to just be ready all the time. Well, that'll be very inconvenient. You know, we'll have to be ready and all the time and watching all the time because we don't know. Maybe if we know when the end of the term is, then we know shortly after that time he'll be coming home and we'll be especially careful right around that time. Well, Christ's coming is that way. We can know the season, but not the specific day or the hour. We are commanded to be aware of the season and be vigilant. Vigilant. Aware, take heed, watch, and pray. Luke 21, 34 through 37. Luke 21, 34 through 37. Apparently this matter was kind of on Jesus' mind when he talked about this. He mentions it other times as well. Luke 21, beginning in verse 34. But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day come on you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all of those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Oh, boy, here it is again. Watch, therefore, and pray always. And here's a reason why, that you may be counted worthy to escape all the things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. What did we just read? Verse 34, but take heed to yourselves. Verse 36, watch, therefore, And pray always. And here it's connected in the scripture. Taking heed, watching, and praying are connected with escaping the tribulation, the great trial that comes on the earth. Maybe these things are important. Maybe this is something we need to be doing and careful about. You know, the parable of the fig tree mentions leaves of the fig tree, um, so forth. Remember Matthew 34, uh, 24, rather, verse 32. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branches has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. Well, in Matthew 24, what are some of the leaves? What kind of leaves can you watch for? These are things you can see. God tells us this. What are some of them? Turn to Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24. And we'll look at a few of them. There are several things. We're not going to read all of this, but in Matthew 24, verses 1 through uh, 3 through 14, it mentions apostasy and false prophets, local wars, world wars, epidemics, earthquakes, and these are just the beginning of birth pangs. The world is going to go into labor. You know, when Israel came out of Egypt, in effect, Egypt went into labor. They had all of these great things that came and swept over their whole society there. Then the children of Israel passed through the waters and emerged a nation born in that day and went out and married her maker. Well, the whole world is going to go into birth pangs, into labor pangs for the birth of the sons of God. These things are just the beginning of them. Verse 9. Verse 9 says, Hated of all nations, 
all ethnos, all peoples. And this, of course, is referring to the church, but we can't help notice these days that Jews, the Jews and the Israel, the nation of Israel, are hated. I just, it's hard to understand why they are hated so much. The nation of Israel hated a, a model democracy, hated among all the nations of the world. Verse 15 goes on with the abomination of desolation. In Daniel, something is going to be desolated, but something has to be sanctified first in order for it to be desolated. There's a great deal of speculation these days that the temple is planned, that maybe this thing already exists in part scattered around Israel. I don't know. From time to time, uh, there's a group of um, an organization, I guess, is it the Temple Mount Faithful or someone like that. They carry a cornerstone up to the Temple Mount, offering to lay it. Of course, they won't let them, but it drives the Muslims crazy every time they do it. Could this temple be built very quickly? Could a covenant be made that would allow them to do it? And there may be a man alive somewhere today who wants them to do it so he can sit in it, showing that he is God or claiming to be God. But I will point out that the temple is not necessary for the sacrifices to begin. And of all the leaves, that's one of the most important. Verse 21 talks then about the tribulation. Verse 29, the heavenly signs. Verse 30, the day of the Lord. All of these events are described in Revelation, in in the seven seals of Revelation. Go down through all of that and you come to verse 32. The one we just read, that's the parable of the fig tree. Jesus affirmed the prophecies of the Old Testament relative to the last days of this age. Watch for those fig trees, those fig leaves. Watch for them. Now, here's some of the leaves we have already seen or can watch for. Some exciting ones. Turn to Zechariah 12 and verse 6. Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 6. Some exciting things here. Things that have happened in my lifetime. In that day, I will make the governors of Judah, not the kings of Judah. The king of Judah isn't in Judea. But the governors of Judah, like a fire pan in the woodpile and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. And they shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left. But Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. After 2,000 years, almost 2,000 years, they actually did this. It began in 1948. And they immediately declared war. And what did Israel do? They burned this one on one side, and they burned that one on the other side. Burned Jordan, burned Egypt, burned Syria. Ouch, ouch. All the nations came down on them. They got burned and pushed back. A remarkable prophecy. Zechariah 12, verses 2 and 3. Why Jerusalem? Just think about it. Why Jerusalem? I could see maybe London being this this important, or maybe Chicago, or maybe Istanbul sits on the the straits there of uh, control so much trade. Maybe even Chicago. 
But why Jerusalem? And it shall happen in that day, I will make, verse 3, I will make Jerusalem a heavy, very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will be surely cut in pieces, though all the nations of the earth be gathered against it. What a remarkable thing. This city that has no natural resources, does not sit astride any of the great trade routes of the world, uh, it's not a great banking center like London, or what's Jerusalem got going for it? <laughs> I'll tell you what. There's a little piece there that is owned by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he intends to come take it back. And there's a Satan who does not want him to and will do everything in his power. You know what I think we're going to see? My personal opinion is like, a, you know, I've been down in Florida for a long time, and we've been through a bunch of hurricanes down there. I've been through the eye of some hurricanes, a couple of them. You know, it's almost calm there, but oh, everything, this huge storm is swirling around it, and more and more. It appears we're going to see that the world's events are going to start circulating, circulating around this one little, this one place. A building smaller than this will be there. And the eye of the storm will be there. Satan's going to spend his whole mountain on it. Everything he's got for that last little final chance. What looks like or what I think may happen. Now, going on to some other things. Daniel 11 and verse 40. Daniel 11 and verse 40 talks about the king of the north and the king of the south in the last days. We're going to have the rise of a great European power to the north of Jerusalem. Are you reading the news? Wow. It's going to, this power is going to be like 10 Toes, ten kings, ten nations or governments, partly strong, partly weak, partly of iron, partly of clay. We may be seeing these toes form in the daily newspaper right now. We have some very strong nations over there like Germany, iron, you know, great financial strength, other very small weak ones dominated by that. They don't quite mix, do they? Iron and clay. We're seeing it over there now. I was reading a little while back of um, something Mr. Armstrong wrote back in the 50s, and he said, there's going to be a United States of Europe formed. This was crazy because the Iron Curtain had just come down, and, um, you know, it seemed ridiculous that such a thing had happened. But it's been called for and in the last month. United States of Europe called that. Those words spoken by European leaders calling for that. Right there before our very eyes. In the context of current history, current events is going on over there now. The European power to the north of Jerusalem. The king of the north. And then we see the rise of the great power to the south. The king of the south. 
How could that possibly be? How could anyone, and Mr. Armstrong talked about this too, way back, I guess, in the, in the 50s, a, a Mahdi would come up and this, that would be the king of the south. He said a great Muslim power. That, but that seems so unlikely. But now all of these nations are going for democracy there. Everyone thinks, oh, they're going to become like the United States and the nations of Europe. How nice. They're going to form liberal democracies in the Middle East. You know, when they surveyed, when the several nations were surveyed over there, I think it was Morocco, Pakistan, and one other. I forget, but it was by the, a, an arm of the Department of Homeland Security. And they asked them the question, would you like to see the caliphate reformed? And significant majorities of those three nations survey of the people said yes. And when they survey all of them, they all want uh, Sharia law to be reinstituted there. I read an article just in the paper today. One of the people that was killed in the recent, uh, an al-Qaeda guy that was killed in a recent um, um, predator attack, uh, uh, drone attack over there, he had said that uh, he was calling for the reestablishment of the caliphate, and he said there was going to be blood and gore and described horrible scenes all over the world until it was established all over the world. And the first thing they're going to start with is right there in the Middle East. And what I think is these people who are talking about the Arab Spring, they're going to be seeing the Islamist winter as soon as people have a chance to vote on what type of government they want. They don't want what they see the Western liberal democracies producing, the pornography, the all of the garbage and nonsense that we have. They say they want to have Sharia law instituted there. I think a lot of people are going to be very surprised when the king of the south arises. And he is, of course, going to push at the king of the north um, um, and they are going to contend likely over Jerusalem. Leaves forming, leaves forming, popping out here and there, tender branches. You can begin to see them. Turn to Second Thessalonians, um, chapter two and verse five. Second Thessalonians, chapter two and verse five. Another thing that you should be watching for. Verses 2 through 5, brother. Verses 2 through 5. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together for, to him, we ask you, do not be um, soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as from us <clears throat> as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Apparently, there's going to be a re-sanctification of the priesthood and a re-establishment of the holy place for these things in order for them to happen. Daniel chapter 9, verses 26 through 27, talks about the beginning of the sacrifices. 
uh, or talks about the sacrifices being taken away, rather, that means we have to watch for the beginning of the sacrifices. As soon as the sacrifices begin, then it can be taken away. And the, we're going to we'll go into all of the details on this, subject for another sermon. But when the sacrifices are taken away, that begins the Great Tribulation. And by the way, that's how you know that Christ isn't coming tonight. It's at least three and a half years away. It always is until the sacrifices are taken away. And it's likely at least seven years away because those sacrifices will go on for a few years until they are taken away. But the taking away of the sacrifices is mentioned in Daniel 11.31 and Joel 1.13 and Joel 2.17. It is an important event. And when you see that happen, the clock starts ticking. These are just a few of the biblical leaves that we have seen or should be watching for. You can know. I'd like to also recommend the booklet, 14 Signs Announcing Christ's Coming. If you haven't read that, by all means do so, or reread it. It might make some interesting reading for you. Point number five. The Greek word for watch, as I said, carries the meaning of wakeful vigilance. Wakeful vigilance. Mark 14, verse 32 through 42. Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. Sleeping when we should be watching is a big problem and a danger for the church, both spiritually and physically. Before they had the Holy Spirit, the disciples had a little problem with vigilance. Let's read about it here. Verse 32. Then they came to a place which is named Gethsemane, and he said to the disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Stay here and watch. Now, I know you're probably getting tired of hearing me talk about You're going to be even more tired of it by the time I'm done with this sermon, because we're told to watch, watch, watch. And there's going to be a lot about it here, and that's what we're talking about right now. Stay here and watch. And he went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping. And said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch. And pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit truly is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again he went and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And then he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up, let us go. See, my betrayer is hand is at hand. Will Christ say that to us someday? Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour is come. He warns that some will be in that state when he comes. First Thessalonians five verses one through nine. 
Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 1 through 9. Once again, we see the same theme spoken of again repeatedly. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly well that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so this day should overtake you as a thief. Why won't it? Why not? Verse 5. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. And we are not of the night nor of darkness. Let us, therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. That doesn't just exclude drunkenness. It means spiritual uh, um, soberness, sobriety, not getting drunk or spiritually drunk on other things. Verse 7, for those who sleep, Spiritually sleep at night. And those who get drunk spiritually are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Another good booklet to read about this is um, 14 Signs of Christ's um, Coming. I think I mentioned that before. But let's look at Revelation 3, verses 1 through 4. Here's a church, a whole church that's asleep. A whole church is asleep. And they receive a stern warning from Jesus Christ himself. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things, says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. He says that to all seven churches. I know your works. That you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard, hold fast, and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. A sobering warning to the church of the Sardis era. Point number six, here are two things that we can be careful to do. Two things that we can be careful to do. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. And by the way, you're doing these two things today. You saw it all over the congregation. This is a good, faithful, obedient to Christ congregation. We can see the day approaching, brethren. Some people say that you can't. The Bible says that you can and there's something we can, we should do as we see it approaching. Verses 24 and 25. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. First thing, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. They apparently had the stay-at-home church back in those days. 
people who would not come and assemble themselves together. We are command- This is a commanded assembly, the Sabbath is. We come together for a bunch of reasons. God gives many different services to us through his ministry, through each other, when we come together. It is important that you are here. It's good that you are here. But, point two, exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. You can if you're watching vigilantly, can't you? Yes, you can. But exhorting one another. And as you see these things coming, as we see those leaves appearing, as we see more of this remarkable action going on in Europe, we exhort one another, we encourage one another, we hold one another up, we stick together as a church, as brethren in the fellowship of God that he has for us here. And we support one another and exhort one another when people are in difficulty or have illness or injury. We exhort and encourage one another, and so much the more so as you see the day approaching. Somebody was going to see the day approaching. We are doing that. But how will you see it approaching and heed? Remember, heed? How will you see it approaching? By prophecy. (laughs) That's how. We're told what's going to happen. We're told what the leaves are and all of the events that are going to lead up to it. We can see the day approaching. The Bible tells us this. And so we heed what God says. We watch prophetic events. We report on them to the world. That's what Tomorrow's World does. It's magazine, the TV program, the Internet. We relate the current events to biblical prophecy. Everything we produce can be accessed anywhere in the world, downloaded and read and studied. Well, okay, let's then say that you're watching vigilantly as you're commanded. You're doing all of that. Let's say you're doing it. So... What are you if you watch? Uh Uh-oh. You're a watchman, aren't you? A person who watches is a watchman. And what obligation does God lay on his watchman? They must tell what they see. You know, you've been given eyes to see and ears to hear. And one of the things I always enjoyed so much about being a pastor and before that as a local elder is when the new people come, uh, the go-tos as we call them sometime, and we talk to them, you know, so often they say the same things over and over. They say, I can understand the Bible for the first time. I always wanted to understand it, and now it's really great, and I really understand the Bible. This is really super. And they're all excited and turned on because for the first time they can look in God's Word and see all of these things and understand it. God's Spirit is working with them to open their mind so that they can understand these things. And what I also, another thing that they often say, and maybe some of you are new here and you've been through this recently. What happened when you told your neighbors? Oh, boy. I'm so excited. I saw all of this. This is wonderful. And 
really excited about this. Look at it. You see it, too. I say, are you crazy? That doesn't make any sense to me. That's nonsense. That's complete. That's foolishness to me. You couldn't explain it to them, could you? You tried and tried. We always tell the new people, you know, don't try to convert your family members and your neighbors. I know you're going to try, but it's not going to work. It's because God is calling you and opening up your mind. Every person in this congregation, whether you're baptized or not, has had this experience. The Spirit of God working with you, opening your mind, enabling you to see things. It's called eyes to see and ears to hear. You're given that. You can see and understand things because of the Spirit of God working with you, or in the case of a baptized person, working in you, that allow you to know and understand things that other people just don't seem to be able to get. And I want to tell you, that is a miracle. And you should think of it as such. It is a miracle that every person in God's church experiences, every called person experiences this miracle. You can do something that other people can't do. And you should think of it as a miracle, and you should thank God for it as a miracle. Just as surely as if you broke your arm and it was suddenly healed, which has happened, but just as surely as if it were a physical healing, wouldn't you not thank God for a miracle? Of course you would. But what about the miracle of seeing and hearing? That's a miracle, too. Thank God for it. Thank him for opening your eyes and enabling you to understand and see what's in his word. You can see what's in the 7,000-year book. You can see the plan. You can see the plan of salvation in no small part because you're acting it out in the holy days. God has us act it out so that we don't forget. We can see these things and understand. But if you have been given eyes to see and ears to hear, to whom much is given, much is required, isn't it? To whom much is given, much is required. Turn, if you would, please, to Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 1 through 7. Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 1 through 7. And I know we've read this just recently, and we often look at these verses, but I would like to read it again in the context of what I'm talking about today. Ezekiel chapter 33 and verses 1 through 7. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, When I bring the sword upon the land, and the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman, When he sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet. He did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But he who takes warning will save his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet... And the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any person from among them. He is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. Uh Uh-oh. That doesn't sound so good, does it? Verse 7. So you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. 
And you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. But Dr. Meredith does that. Tomorrow's World does that. And you're doing that. You support the work that is doing that, in addition to announcing the uh, good news of the kingdom of God and preaching repentance to us as individuals and national repentance to Israel, the house of Israel. That's the only way they can escape it is by nationally repenting. Some people have dismissed Dr. Meredith's message of warning to the house of Israel saying, well, it's not a salvational issue. According to this, It certainly may be for the watchman. God may require the blood of all of those who are taken at the hands of the person who is watching and does not say. And that saying, um, not a salvational issue. Um, What that says to me when someone says that is that, oh, I'm going to do just the least possible. I'm just only going to do the things that are salvational. And if if it's not salvational, I'm not going to do it then. Uh, Is that a zealous attitude? Doing the least possible? How is that zealous? Or maybe is that a lukewarm attitude? I hope not. Point seven, point number seven. Occasionally someone will ask, well, you know, worried and concerned and shifting around a little bit. And they say, well, what if, if these aren't the end times and time just goes on and on? What if I'm doing all this for nothing? You ever get that feeling a little bit? Have you ever heard that said? Well, my answer to that is, If the only reason you believe and obey God is because you're seeing prophecy fulfilled or maybe hope to see it fulfilled, then, you know, you may be here for the wrong reason. What about all of our brethren who have lived for the last 2,000 years? You know, Christ said the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. They have been out there in the 2nd century, the 5th century, the 9th century A.D., in the... And all throughout the Middle Ages, during the Renaissance, our brethren have been out there. What about them? How much end-time prophecy did they see fulfilled? Why did they stay? What was their motivation? What about them? What was their reason? Well, they'll tell you, they'll tell us about it someday, but I think Acts chapter 2, verses 37 and 38 gives a pretty good answer. It said, men and brethren, what shall we do? That was asked of Peter, and he said, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It comes from the laying out of hands by one of God's true ministers. They wanted to have their sins washed away and live God's way of life for their whole lives, regardless of where they were in prophecy. They could read about it. They could understand it no matter where they were in the last 2,000 years. Christ told them the end from the beginning. It's all there. A completed plan of salvation. These works were finished from the foundation of the world, and they knew it. Do we know it? Do we really believe that and have that confidence 
Well, I will say that uh, they did it because they love God's way of life, and they wanted to live it as a great blessing, and they believed that God would raise them up to immortality and to his kingdom in the last day, whether they saw the end times happen or not. And we need to believe that too. So they obeyed the command to watch and be vigilant because that's an important spiritual thing for every era, every generation of God's church to do. He says, what I say to you, I say to all. He wants us to be wakeful and uh, spiritually sober, a church of the light, a church of the day. All those people lived their lives in faith and obedience. They held on to the truth, and they did the work, whatever the work was in their day. And Christ said, my father and I work, he certainly does. You know, what is your spot? Your finger or an ear or a chin? What part do you have in the work? Those of you who work at headquarters have a special privilege. I certainly feel so privileged to be able to work there, to be part of what Christ is doing in these times. And he's doing things through the body of Christ that he's just not doing in other areas. He hasn't done in, in previous times. And he's sending a witness and a warning to the world for a reason. It's for a reason that Dr. Meredith is so stirred up about this, that we should be too. And the world needs to hear repentance. Israel needs to hear national repentance. The world needs to hear the good news of the kingdom of God, to know that there is hope. And mankind's misrule of the last 6,000 years does not just go on and on and on. There's hope for the world. If you don't live or I don't live and get to see end-time events, then we get to live out our days in God's way of life, and rise up again in the last day, immortal, with our inheritance, to live and serve with our Lord forever. What a great blessing, what a great promise we have in that regard. So the Bible says many things, and it is many things. But in important sense, it's a 7,000-year book. A little bit about the period before, some about the period after. But it tells the end from the beginning. And no matter where you live in this 7,000-year period, this week of millennial days, if you believe God, you can know the entirety of his plan. You can know things that no one else can know, things that it's not possible for anyone to know unless God reveals them to them. They are foolishness to the world, foolishness to them, but not to us, not to you, because you have eyes to see and ears to hear. But we are commanded to watch and be vigilant. And when we see this end approaching, which we can see, we encourage one another, we exhort one another, and we pull together in confidence in the truth and in the work of God.